Episode 46, The History of Hell. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. I always say a podcast where we look at the events of history, and I guess this episode falls into that, but we're also going to venture a bit into theology and the Bible as we look at the history of the theology behind the idea of hell. And just to reiterate, if you're afraid of going to hell yourself, you can go on the podcast website and buy a genuine medieval Pope-endorsed indulgence. I've got a special offer for podcast subscribers. Only $500 today if you use the code 95theses when you purchase. All kidding aside, I should give you guys fair warning about this episode. It's a little bit long. The history of hell is appropriately long and convoluted, so the episode has run on a bit despite my best editing efforts. I should also give fair warning here at the beginning that some of what I'm going to say is not exactly in line with the conventional teaching of some churches today. So if you're a churchgoer, I'm just giving you fair warning that I may say some things in this episode that you might disagree with. I will also say to you churchgoers that I personally firmly agree with Luther's principle of sola scriptura. So I'm trying to be guided by that rather than what the church has believed historically, traditionally. The modern church, in many cases, likes to try to make things clear and simple when in reality, those things in the Bible are much more vague. And if you try to hold closely to the principle of sola scriptura, only scripture, you will have to admit to vagueness in some places where you would really wish that there was more clarity. And hell is one of those places. So what do you think of when you think of the idea of hell? You've probably got an image of a floor made of boiling lava inside a deep, dark cave and horned demons gleefully poking poor, burning sinners with pitchforks. I'll just start off by saying that image is really not from the Bible. It's much more an image that comes from Dante's Inferno and medieval paintings, which I have some of those on the website. But we'll get to all that here in a bit. Our modern image of hell includes the idea that it's underground, it's dark, it's fiery, it's full of dead people's souls, that's the bad people anyway. There's also demons and perhaps the actual devil himself, and that the people are being tortured actively and that it lasts for all of eternity. So how in the hell did we humans come up with the idea of hell as one of the options for a way to spend your afterlife? Let's take a look at how that concept developed. One of the very oldest human stories is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which we talked about way back in episode two. Gilgamesh is an ancient Sumerian story about the hero Gilgamesh. And a major theme of the story is that Gilgamesh wants to live forever. He does not want to die in part because he just saw his friend Enkidu die. And Enkidu comes to Gilgamesh in a dream after he's dead, and he describes the afterlife. He describes it as being underground and not very pleasant. Enkidu says that it's bleak and that the vermin are constantly devouring his body. But it's better if you have a lot of sons. It's not clear why that's better. Anyway, my point here is that even in the very oldest human stories, there's been this idea of an afterlife, a place where souls go. It's interesting to me that humans have always thought this, even though we can't really prove that it exists. 
but all the ancient cultures seem to have a concept of the afterlife. Fast forward maybe a thousand years, and then we get to Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, and by this time, the Greeks have developed a more thorough description of the afterlife. We talked about Homer back in episode 6. In the Greek concept of the afterlife, everyone, no matter who they are, no matter how good or bad they were, goes to the afterlife. Everyone goes there to a place called Hades, where they live as shades. It's a kind of a not-quite-material ghost, but they're still sort of who they were in real life. Again, the place of the dead is described to be underground and not very pleasant. It's dark, it's gloomy, and it's frightening. Homer talks about it in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, and in the Odyssey, Odysseus actually goes there for a quick visit. In his visit, he meets an old shipmate, and then he meets his mother, who he didn't know had died, and he talks to both of them. Both of them say it's pretty grim down there. Then, Odysseus meets Achilles, the Greek hero who had died in the Iliad. And Achilles says to him, How did you dare to come below to Hades' realm, where the dead live on as mindless, disembodied ghosts? And then Achilles goes on to say, I would rather work the soil as a serf on hire to some landless, impoverished peasant than to be king of all these lifeless dead. So you get the impression that the Greeks had a pretty bleak view of the afterlife. But again, there's the key point. The Greeks did believe that after you died, your soul continued to exist. The shades seemed also to be in some way cognizant of what was going on living on earth. Now, this, of course, is a mostly fictional story, as was Gilgamesh, so we can't take either of them as an authoritative description, but it just goes to show that the Greeks and the ancient Sumerians and all the other ancient cultures believed in some kind of afterlife and that it was below the ground and kind of bleak and dark and miserable. And this is important. The Greeks called the place Hades. This was the realm of the dead, and it was also ruled over by the god of the dead, whose name was also Hades. We'll come back to that word in a minute, Hades. Remember that. Hades is the Greek place of the dead. There's one other piece to the Greek concept of Hades, though, that was even more unpleasant than Hades was, and that was the pit of Tartarus. This pit is described in some of the Greek epic tales, though not in Homer, and it's described as being the lowest level of Hades. It's a place where all the really wicked people were sent. Tartarus was described as a kind of fiery pit, but it's also where all the rivers of Hades drained down into it. So it was kind of a cesspool. It's a cesspool, but it's also fiery. So it's kind of like Lake Erie, I guess. It's the place also where Zeus cast down the Titans when he defeated them. It's kind of like the worst part of Hades. So remember that word too, Tartarus. There's another ancient description of the afterlife, and it's a bit more vague than the Greeks was though. And that is found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, the place of the dead is called Sheol. The word means the grave, or more literally, the pit, kind of like just a hole in the ground. It could be a hole, it could be a grave, but it also sort of just stands for death. The descriptions of it in the Old Testament are really, really vague, and no one in the Old Testament goes there to visit like Odysseus did. It's described in the Psalms as a place of silence, and in the very old book of Job, it's described as The land as dark as midnight, the land of the shadow of death, without any order, where the light is as midnight. So it's not even clearly a separate place like Hades was. In the Old Testament, it just kind of means the grave, but remember this word, sheol, as well. 
Now let's move forward to Virgil and the Aeneid, which was written in Latin, and we mentioned this one back in episode 17, which was about the Punic Wars. The Aeneid is actually really important in the development of the imagery that we today associate with hell. The Aeneid was written as a heroic origin story for the Roman Empire, and it was very consciously copying the Odyssey in both style and in some of the events that happened. In the Odyssey, Odysseus went to the underworld, so in the Aeneid, Aeneas goes to the underworld. But where Homer was kind of vague about the underworld, Virgil goes into a great deal of detail about what's there. Virgil uses the word inferus as the name for the underworld. It sort of means the same as Hades, but Virgil is much more colorful in how he describes it. Remember, in Homer, the underworld is just kind of a basic holding place for all the souls. In Virgil's Aeneid, the underworld is a place where the good are rewarded and the evil are punished. There's also a limbo where the people who are neither good nor bad are simply waiting. But the key thing about Virgil's underworld is that those who have not led honorable, virtuous lives are physically tortured. Although in the case of some of the souls that are described, it seems like they could work off their debts and be at peace after a few thousand years in this place. Virgil also describes different areas of the underworld where different groups receive different punishments. Dante will expand on this a great deal. We'll see that in a moment. Where Homer's Hades is mostly sort of a holding place, Virgil's Inferus is a place that exists to punish and reward people for their lives back on earth. Virgil also implies that these souls, once punished or rewarded, could go back and have another life on earth. Once you've paid your dues in punishment, according to Virgil, you could either move on to a better part of the afterlife or possibly back to another life on earth. Now later, Dante is going to make this punishment thing permanent and unending. Now there's one other piece of the afterlife from ancient mythology that we should look at as well, and that's the concept of Elysium. Now this was a place of peace and rest, often called the Elysian field. And in its early mentions, it was a place of the gods, but later, especially in Roman mythology, it comes to be a place that those who had been blessed by the gods and, or people who had lived a good, righteous life would go as a reward. And instead of being dark and gloomy, it was seen as light and peaceful and beautiful. But it was still seen as part of the realm of Hades. So it was still part of the underworld, part of the realm of the dead. As a quick side note, this is the place that's envisioned at several points in the movie Gladiator and mentioned by Maximus at the beginning of the movie before he sends his army to fight the Germans. Some of the Germanic tribes, by the way, had a similar place of honor for those who died in battle called Valhalla, but you had to die in battle to go there. But to the larger point, the Germans and the Norse tribes, as well as the Romans, believed in an afterlife. But none of these conceptions of the afterlife, with the possible exception of the imagery of Tartarus, really quite equate to our medieval conception of hell, do they? So where do we get this medieval conception of hell with the fire and the demons and the tortures? Let's, before we get to Dante, let's look a bit about what the Bible says and then talk a little bit about translation issues. Like I said, the Bible mentions the word Sheol in the Old Testament in several places. It's mentioned 66 times in the Old Testament, but it's not very well described. It's just quiet and dark, and it doesn't carry the overtones of tortured for all eternity, that you see in the idea of hell. That concept is just not there in the word Sheol. Then we get to the New Testament. And did you know that in the New Testament, the word hell isn't used at all? Well, not hell in the sense that we use it. The New Testament was written in Greek originally, of course, and it rather frequently uses the word Hades, the Greek word Hades, as a description of the place of the dead, 
It also uses the, the word Gehenna, which is the Greek version of a Hebrew word, and that's the name of a valley just south of Jerusalem. It's the Hinnom Valley, Gehenna. In that valley of Gehenna, there was apparently, in New Testament times, a trash heap that was more or less constantly burning. It was the place where they burned the trash of Jerusalem, again, kind of like like Erie. In the Old Testament, that valley also seems to be the place where they put the bones and ashes of some dead bodies, although the Hebrews were much more likely to bury their dead than burn them. But in the Old Testament as well, before Jerusalem was conquered by the Hebrews, the Gehenna Valley was apparently a place where sacrifices were made to Moloch, including children being sacrificed there. So it's a place with a pretty bad image. The word Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament, mostly by Jesus. But remember, this is a place name, right? A place name with the imagery of burning trash and the overtones of evil sacrifices to pagan gods, but not a place underground where people are tortured for all eternity. That's not the imagery of the word Gehenna, right? It's, it's a trash pit that's on fire. The New Testament also uses the word Tartarus, the one that seems to be more like our picture of hell, but it only uses it one time. And that's in the book of 2 Peter, where Peter says that God cast the sinful angels into Tartarus. There's also one other word that sometimes is used to describe hell that occurs a few times in the New Testament, and that is the lake of fire, which appears five times, all in the book of Revelation. And this is where it starts to get interesting, at least to me. But before I talk about why this is interesting, I want to point out also where I think everything went wrong and the modern idea of hell was born. I mentioned earlier that the New Testament was originally written in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew. For the first 300 years after Jesus died, the church mostly used the Greek versions of the New Testament books. But in AD 383, a monk named Jerome translated the entire Old Testament and New Testament into Latin, which was the language of the Roman Empire, and by now one of the main languages of the church. Remember way back in episode 25, we talked about Constantine, the Roman emperor who made Christianity one of the official religions of Rome? Bad idea. Bad idea. This happened back in the early 300s, and it started the process of the church becoming a political organization, becoming part of the official political structure of the Roman Empire. Now, this started before Jerome, but when Jerome came along and published his Latin version of the entire Bible, that started to be widely adopted by the Roman church and eventually became the official Bible of the Western Roman churches. Now, why does this matter? Well, because in every place in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that mentioned any word that had anything to do with the afterlife, all of these words we've just talked about, Jerome translated it with one Latin word. That's the Latin word, Gehenna. Basically, what happened is that by using the same word for all the different names of the underworld, Jerome has allowed for all of the descriptions, especially the ones that involve fire and punishment, to be associated with this one place where the dead go and they're burned forever. And he called it Gehenna. Again, remember, Gehenna is the New Testament place where the trash is disposed. It's not the place in the New Testament where souls go after death. That's Hades, which was also used in the New Testament. But Jerome uses the same word to translate both of them. And especially when Gehenna, the word, is used by Jesus, it's not clear that he's talking about a place of eternal, unending punishment. It's just a place where the trash goes. It signifies something useless being disposed of. It's not a positive end. It's not a positive place. But neither is it necessarily an eternal place of punishment and burning. 
But in the end, Gehenna, Hades, Sheol, Tartarus, they all get lumped together in the same word, and they're not the same place. But using the same word to translate them is a theological effort on Jerome's part to make things clear when the actuality, the original versions, the original words, are kind of vague. It's a theological translational choice to tie these places together when maybe they're not the same thing, they're not the same place. What was kind of a vague description of various places where the dead go and where there's some sort of punishment or some sort of burning, in the Latin version of the Bible, it becomes a specific singular place where there's an eternity of torture for the sinful. And by the Middle Ages, the church had developed a pretty elaborate description of this place that comes to be called hell. That description relied much more on Virgil's description of the underworld than it did on any descriptions in the Bible. And the church used that threat of unrelenting eternal punishment as a means to keep people in line and worried about the possibility of the church excommunicating them and them spending their eternity in hell. The church also took up Virgil's idea that you could work off your sins over time and go to a better place. And from that idea, the church created the concept of purgatory. The Middle Ages version of purgatory was kind of a place where everyone who died who wasn't an official saint, but was also not a completely awful, unrepentant sinner, if you were in that category, you would go to purgatory. If you were still in the good graces of the church, but you had over the course of your life committed a few sins, and who hasn't, then you would go to purgatory and sort of work off those sins over time. And then eventually you could go on to heaven. There's absolutely nothing like this in the Bible itself. It really comes much more from Virgil and the sort of Roman conception of the afterlife. But again, the church used this idea, purgatory, to keep people in line. It was purgatory that you could buy your way out of by purchasing indulgences on your own behalf or on behalf of other people. Now, oddly enough, at first, when Luther objected to the practice of selling indulgences, he did not object to the idea of purgatory although later reformers did. Because the idea of sola scriptura meant that you should be guided only by what was in the Bible, not just what the church had been teaching for a thousand years. And so we'll see the reformers begin to change their conceptions as they try to lean on that particular principle of understanding the Bible. But back to the Middle Ages and back to hell. Virgil had specific areas where different types of sinners were punished. Then Dante comes along and he writes the Inferno in the mid-1350s. I mentioned this back in episode 37 at the beginning of the Renaissance. Dante wrote an epic poem in Italian about his own journey to the underworld, and he leaned heavily on Virgil's description of the underworld for his own work. Do you know who Dante's guide through the underworld was? None other than Virgil himself. Dante was consciously expanding on Virgil's depiction of the underworld. I have some images of Virgil's depiction of the underworld, as well as Dante's depiction of the underworld on the website, which is, by the way, shortwalkthroughhistory.com. The Italian word for the underworld is inferno, which is derived from the Latin word that Virgil used, inferus. It's from the word inferus that J.K. Rowling got the word inferi, who were the reanimated bodies of the dead who tried to get Harry in the cavern, the one that didn't have a horcrux, in the half-blood prince. The Latin word inferus doesn't automatically have the overtones of burning that we English speakers today hear when we hear the word inferno. Originally in Dante's Italian, the word inferno just meant the underworld. But after Dante, 
It means a big fire. Dante's book ends up changing the meaning of the word. In Dante's underworld, the only people who are in hell are the sinners who had died unrepentant and outside the graces of the church. And the key thing about Dante's underworld is that it's divided into nine rings, each one deeper and each one closer to the center of Inferno. So in Dante, everyone in Inferno, everyone in the underworld, they are all being punished for their sins for all eternity with no hope of escape. Hence the sign over the entrance which says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. The higher uprings, the ones that are farther from the center of hell, are for the smaller sins. And as your sins get more serious, you end up going deeper into hell and closer to the center. The order of the levels from the least sinful to the most sinful are limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, anger, heresy, violence, fraud, and then, at the bottom, driving while you're on your cell phone. No, actually, the lowest ring is betrayal. The ninth circle, betrayal, is actually a frozen lake. In the middle, frozen up to his waist, is Satan. He has three heads in the inferno, and he's chewing on three betrayers, Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed Julius Caesar, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. I've also got some images of Dante's Inferno and Satan on the website as well. But at every level, the sinners are being punished for their sins. And in Dante, once you're in Inferno, there's no way out ever. It's eternal. And this is really where our modern conception of hell is drawn from. Dante is so vivid in his descriptions that the imagery just completely comes to dominate the way that people think of hell. And the word hell itself is the English version of the Latin word Gehenna that Jerome used to describe all of the underworld. So to summarize, the Bible mentions the underworld, but it's kind of vague about what's going on there. I know, I know the modern church today likes to say it's very clear, but honestly, it's not that clear, at least not in the Bible itself. So the Bible mentions the underworld, but it's kind of vague about what's going on there in many places. But Jerome used one single Latin word for all of the underworld words in the Bible, which kind of allows for the idea that everyone who hasn't gotten to heaven is punished in hell for all of eternity. Dante comes along and then he gives us a very, very vivid description of the underworld based in large part on Virgil. And then lastly, Jerome's word Gehenna gets translated into the English word as hell, and almost all of the English Bible versions, not all of them, but almost all of them, follow Jerome's lead, and they use the one single word for all these different original Greek and Hebrew words. They use one single word, and that word is hell. The Roman church of the Middle Ages used this vivid imagery to scare people into obeying the church and into, into buying indulgences. When the Reformation came along, the new church groups just basically kept the same imagery of hell, and many of them just went along with Jerome's translational mistake again. Again, Gehenna, Hades, and Tartarus are not the same, and using the same word to translate them is a theological effort to make things clear, where the original versions are actually kind of vague. So despite the Reformers trying to get back to the Bible for their theology, despite sola scriptura, they kind of do this wholesale adoption of the Dante-Virgil imagery of hell, and that carries forward into the modern era. Some of you who are American school kids will remember having to read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which was written by a Puritan preacher in the mid-1700s, and that continues the Dante-esque imagery of eternal torture. Eventually, over time, with the goal of trying to be clear, 
the church comes up with a fairly simple duality. Either you repent and turn to God, in which case you'll go to heaven when you die, or you don't repent, in which case you'll go to hell for all of eternity and be burned and stabbed by various demons with pitchforks and other nasty things. It's a simple either-or, something you can explain to a six-year-old. But is it? What about babies who die before they ever get a chance to repent? What about people in other religions who do turn to God, but not in the way that the church has authorized? What about the people who have repented, but still haven't quite gotten away from their sinful ways? What about all the vagueness in the original languages? And what about the early church's idea that everyone will eventually be resurrected? You can see that this is what the early church was teaching, even as far back as the first generation of believers after Jesus' death. Jesus was resurrected and the church was teaching, hey, we're all going to be resurrected. You can see it even in the book of Acts. They're talking about everyone being resurrected. And here's an interesting conundrum. We come back to this part that I found interesting. It's an interesting conundrum for those who believe in an eternal hell of torment. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the one that talks about the lake of fire, it also talks about the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment. Before the judgment, though, it says that all of the dead are resurrected. In fact, the book of Revelation says it like this, Death and Hades gave up their dead, and the sea gave up its dead. All the dead are now resurrected, and they're standing in the new heavens and new earth just before the judgment. But here's the conundrum, though, right? If you translate Hades as hell, well, now, how is hell giving up its dead? I thought that the dead were in hell for our all eternity already. Or is Hades, after all, a separate place, just a holding place, like Homer described it? Again, in the Bible, we find vagueness where we're hoping for clarity. And you remember the lake of fire, which I mentioned just a second ago? The next thing that happens after death and Hades give up their dead is that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So wait, hell is thrown into hell? It's not all that clear what's going on there. But many theologians and church teachers like clarity. So they teach the simple duality of repent or burn. Yeah, I agree. We need to repent, especially you. I mean, you know who you are. We all need to repent. But the Bible isn't reducible to this simple duality of repent or burn. It's just not as clear on this as some make it out to be. Now, there are some modern biblical theologians who have tried to peel out what the Bible actually says about the afterlife from this historical imagery that the afterlife has picked up. For example, N.T. Wright, J.R. Butler, John Stott, and others have tried to propose alternative ways of reading the original texts. C.S. Lewis created two very vivid examples of possible afterlife processes, afterlife worlds. In the Chronicles of Narnia, in the book The Last Battle, and in another book, The Great Divorce, he creates two different stories about the afterlife. Both stories are very vivid, and both stories do justice to the sort of vagueness that we find in the Bible. I highly recommend that you go read them both. They're both good stories, and they make you think, which I guess is what I'm trying to do with this podcast as well. The goal of the podcast is to look at the events of history and to see how they shaped our modern world. Well, the idea of hell has definitely shaped the modern world, so I guess we're justified in having this rather long episode about it. Well, as I said, we ventured into hell. History, theology, as well as Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Bible translation. No wonder this episode was long. Next episode, we're going to watch the Reformation spread across Northern Europe. And then, the episode after that, we will see the Catholic Church's response to the Reformation, which was known as the Counter-Reformation. 
And then after that, we'll get to Queen Elizabeth and then Shakespeare and then the first English colonies in the New World. Ah, we're getting close to the end of the Middle Ages now. We're only a few episodes away from the beginning of the modern era. That's assuming that the modern era itself doesn't end in a nuclear apocalypse or something like that before we get through these next episodes. Well, if it does, then at least we're going to get a chance to find out together about the afterlife firsthand. I hope to see you there, or if not, see you in the next episode.